Hey, I'm Cal. Hey, and I'm Kathy. We're the co-hosts of the Heal Well Healthcare Podcast Interdisciplinary, and we're here to uh, invite you to become patrons of our podcast. We're going to team up with the platform called Patreon to invite you even to become an even more active member of this community. So we've got a couple of levels, uh, depending on your interest and uh, and passion about this particular topic and how much you love me and Kathy, perhaps. Uh, so. Uh, the first level, you can become an official patron. It's $5 a month and it allows you to have early access to episodes and, of course, to know that you are part of making sure this podcast keeps happening. Kathy, tell them what else they could win. Oh, well, level two is called All Access Patron, which gives you early access to our episodes and access to bonus episodes Boom. for $10 a month. And then we've got the VIP patron. So you get all those other things, early access, bonus episodes, and then a monthly, what they call AMAs, which are ask me anything, which means that you get uh, unfettered one-on-one-ish access uh, to me and or, or both uh, Kathy uh, to ask us anything, uh, something that came up on the podcast, something that you're uh, trying to blow up in your own community and how we can help you, whatever it might be. So uh, become a patron and help us get the word out and build our community and Thanks already for the love that you're bringing to interdisciplinary and heal well and making the world a better place. We love the love and we love you right back. Hello, I'm Rebecca Sturgeon. And I am Kathy Ryan. And welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. Uh, in this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive devi- deviants, Kathy Ryan, and usually Cal Cates, but today, me, will use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare and humanity through a truly interdisciplinary lens. We have honest, uncomfortable conversations about topics like access, racism, death, ageism, ableism, and, and equity. You will always learn something. You'll always laugh, and you'll, you'll come away better informed and with real things you can do in your own community and your own practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Um, please like us, share us on all the social medias. Uh, we appreciate your support. And I think I'll just go into, I mean, you thought Cal was here, Cal wasn't here, you were going to have a pun-free episode, but that cannot happen. So here is today's pun. Are you ready, Kathy? Oh, I'm ready, Rebecca. Okay. So Kathy, what beverage is both bitter and sweet? I don't know. Reality. Oh. <laughs> Reality today. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nicely done, my friend. You're you're filling the shoes just great. Well, I, I should. I think my feet are bigger than Cal's anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kathy Ryan, what's new up in the wilds of British Columbia? Oh well, um, Yes, we're, it's COVID and it's real and it's happening and stuff is going on and uh, that's pretty much where we're at. The vaccine rollout is definitely slower in Canada than it has been in the U.S., certainly in terms of receiving the second dose. Uh, that's still the case up here that um, 
the wait time in between the, the dosage is um, definitely exceeding what kind of the original recommendations were. Um, but it, it is happening. And, you know, we're seeing similar kind of stuff that you're seeing in the States, people who are eager to get it and those who are not too sure and others who are like absolutely adamant that they will not be vaccinated. So pretty similar set of circumstances. Meanwhile, I'm masked up and people coming to see me are masked up and washing things and still doing the best I can to create a safe environment for people to come into. Yeah. Um, well, it's similar here. I'm, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and we're having a little surge lit, you know, it's not, it's not huge, but we had, um, the Derby in person where very few people were wearing masks. So I'm kind of, we're, we're kind of bracing ourselves for something, um, to happen in a couple of weeks. We'll see. And, um, have just been noticing a lot in the news about, uh, the moratorium on evictions being possibly overturned, um, and things that are, I'm sure we'll get into with our, our guests who are well more, more informed about these kinds of things than we are um, today. So um, without further ado, I would love for our guests, um, Lillian and, and Amelia, if you would take a minute to introduce yourself and your organization and um, how awesome you are and how happy we are to have you here. So my name is Amelia Jackson. Uh, I'm a family nurse practitioner um, at Healthcare for the Homeless um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I love the work that I do. Um, we work with the most vulnerable um, in our society and provide comprehensive uh, primary care um, for our clients. Um, we are a patient-centered medical home. Um, and I think we'll go more into that as we talk today, but uh, just making sure that people have high quality coordinated care, regardless of their ability to pay, um, is is our main focus um, and definitely enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, my name is Lillian Amaya, I'm coordinator of community health and outreach at Healthcare for the Homeless. Um, I've been working here for the last three years. Um, and uh, like Amelia said, we serve people experiencing homelessness. Um, we have a number of different services. The focus in, um, on my team is to serve people where they are, help them connect to healthcare, um, help remove, resolve any barriers to accessing any sort of services or support that they need, uh, and provide um, ongoing support. Uh, and kind of like a build trust. <laughs> That's what I want to yeah. say. Um, build that trust that um, that helps people get the care that they need. Yeah. Um, so there, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much that I want to talk to you about. Um, but one of the things that that I think initially. Um, made us really excited to talk to you on this podcast in particular is that your model of care um, seems to be truly interdisciplinary. Um, and, and could you talk more about that and more about what you mean when you say you're a medical home? At health, anybody who walks into healthcare for the homeless for services, I believe can leave with, with having wraparound support um, and and a good plan of like 
an avenue of, of opportunities. Um, so we have care teams. Um, so every, every individual who receives services at Healthcare for the Homeless is on a, a care team. So all of the providers um, who they see are on the same team and we all work together to support each individual. Um, and that, that model, I think it best supports our clients. So there's a case manager, a community health worker, a nurse practitioner, a behavioral health therapist, um, a medical assistant, and an administrative person um, on each care team. Uh, so we work together and serve the same clients to make sure that um, all of their needs are met and that that we're aware of all of the things that, that need to happen to get those needs met. Absolutely. Um, and I think Lillian did a good job kind of summarizing just what we do here. But the goal is that we, we know that there is a lot of um, a lot of things that go into care. Um, I think there was a study done like in um, 2005 that talked about how much time it takes to care for the top five chronic illnesses. If we're caring for the whole person and that whole illness and everything that should go into that from the orders, the teaching, the prescribing, um, the assessment, um, and just understanding that for a panel of about 1,250 people, that's over nine hours a day. And that's not including any other administrative tasks. So understanding like if we're, our goal is to care for people as whole individuals and understanding the complexity that comes with that, you have to have a whole team uh, approach to deal with that. Um, and so at Healthcare for the Homeless, as Lillian um, so wonderfully um, detailed, we do that in regards to who's on our care team and that when a patient does come into our clinic, they are connected with the care team. Um, and I've had the privilege of working some with the PEDS team there, but also at one of our community sites where it just kind of naturally happens because our one site is a care team within itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, um, we had talked about before you came on, uh, you had mentioned, Amelia, that there's a lot of people who are experiencing chronic illnesses and need, you know, all of these services wrapped up together um, in order to manage those chronic illnesses. But you're also working with people who are experiencing homelessness. So you're, you're not, you don't have things like an address um, or, you know, uh, mail, you know, the things that you have when you're housed. So how do you... How do you do that? How do you manage <laughs> like yes. a chronic illness, like for example, diabetes that needs daily medication and constant monitoring? Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, great question. And Lillian, do you want to go first? Do you want me to jump in first on that? <laughs> you go first and then and then I'll Absolutely. jump in. Um, so yes, uh, great question. Um, we deal with clients along the spectrum of homelessness, um, and there is a lot of um, instability and uncertainty and vulnerability that just comes with that, and an, and complexity that's added to the already com- complex disease process that they're having to deal with. Um, and so oftentimes that requires thinking outside of the box um, and really providing some of those true wraparound services uh, to get clients to the endpoint that 
that we desire for them, which is to have health that's on par with a more stable, stably housed population. Um, and so what that looks like is, for instance, when I'm thinking of someone's diabetes care, I'm thinking of their housing situation. And I am, when I'm looking at, okay, do they have refrigeration? Because if they don't, insulin's not an option. Yeah. Um, so what are our oral-based medications that we can do to help to manage this? Um, we're looking at the community resources. Um, who, who do I have in the community that can help to support this client um, with diet and things of that sort? Um, when I'm looking at um, their blood pressure, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm prescribing um, a diuretic, per se, is this a person that has ready access to go to the bathroom if it's something that's going to cause me to urinate frequently? Or yeah. should I maybe choose a different a different regimen yeah. um, in regards to that? So these are all considerations that we think about when we're processing through um, what medication to put someone on um, on how it will affect their lives. And that is where um, we rely on uh, uh, the Lillian and the <laughs> and everyone else to make it work because no one person um, can fully do this job when you're dealing with individuals who are so vulnerable um, and who deserve our absolute best, but who often are discarded or that people don't necessarily see um, in regards to their care. And so I think Lillian can speak more to what happens after the prescription <laughs> and what happens in those that, that really does that other piece of care that goes beyond a pill or prescribing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, these people are faced with different situations and obstacles. Um, and sometimes a lot of times they impact people's health. Um, and so someone that is experiencing homelessness and has diabetes or is HIV positive or has cancer, um, they, they have to think or have to figure out a way to like get their medical needs met while they're experiencing homelessness. Right. And that sounds impossible to me. That sounds unfair, unjust. And just yeah. it's, it's fortunate that that's the reality that, that the people that we serve face um, so, I mean, I, I, um, I respect all of the people that we serve, all of our clients, um, and they are so strong and resilient um, for so many reasons. But um, with, with people who are staying in a shelter, oftentimes they rely on the food that they're given or people are relying on the schedules created at different um, food pantries or places mm -hmm. for food. So they're following different schedules or, you know, taking in whatever is provided to them. And those things may not always be um, in line with a, a diet that supports healthy diabetes management. Um, so when those situations happen, there, there are times where, where I can go to Amelia, who's on my care team, and say, Amelia, can you write a letter for this client so that we can give it to the shelter staff so that they can provide them with a special dietary lunch or something like that? 
or we, we can sort of make a plan to, to, to best support the client and, and their needs. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, and, and people have to take what they can get. Um, and that, that's, that's the reality. Um, there's barriers to transportation, getting to the clinic, getting to a procedure. Um, there's things that we don't think about because we have a home, like keeping up with the time. If, if I don't have a charger to charge my phone or like have a batteries for my watch, I don't know what time it is. Like, I don't know what time I'm supposed to take my meds, call my doctor, get to my appointments or figure out the bus schedule. Um, so those are, these are all different components that impact our health that, that our clients are facing every single day. And um, so community health workers and outreach workers are in the field. Um, working with clients on these different things and helping them get the care or support they need um, while also informing the providers on what's what's happening in their lives because sometimes it's hard to um, for providers to, to to see what's really happening because they're they're only seeing what's in the clinic where we're seeing what's what's out there in the field where people are living or where they're getting services elsewhere, you know, what, what, whatever's happening in neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to you speak about your, both your philosophy of care and model of care. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, everybody in healthcare should be paying attention to this because from the perspective of patient advocacy, what you're describing to me sounds like a model that every aspect of healthcare should be following and not just looking at a singular thing when someone comes in, but considering the entire package of what that person brings in and try to figure out what is realistic for that individual and what might work for them. I think my question is, is how, how did you bring this together? How did you develop your model? So I think healthcare for the homeless, um, I think from its infancy has has at least has some understanding that the social determinants of health do have effect or impact on care. We know that when people are unhoused, it is difficult to, to manage your chronic medical illness. And we know that when individuals are housed, that it, it empowers them and allows them to um, more adequately manage those their illnesses um, whether it's by taking their medications, appropriate diet, et cetera. Um, so we know that. So for us, we've always been focused on what the patient is and understanding that patients need additional supports to, to make that work happen. Um, our care teams, as they stand currently, I believe they were rolled out about um, four years ago, four to five years ago, kind of in their entity, and they've kind of begun to kind of form into what they are now um, and really being a hub uh, where that we try to center that patient with a set of providers who are able to regularly communicate uh, their needs. Because before, one client would see one provider um, in this department and this provider in here when we first started the care teams, and it wasn't coordinated. So they may have a green team psychiatrist and a purple team provider, um, and they might have a nurse that they see for appearances on the yellow team. And so nobody really was able to, to talk. So in the last about four years, we're really going to do some work on what does it mean to have a care team? 
Um, what should that look like? And how best can we start to coordinate care? And that work began with us trying to impanel patients to care teams so that that care coordination could begin um, to happen more freely in regards to that. Um, also within that context um, of that model, um, understanding the role of communication. So huddles, um, having those morning huddles and communications about what those patients need before they come in um, for that visit planning, um, as well as understanding for those who are more complex, having a set a dedicated time that occurs once a week within our dedicated care team meetings to be able to discuss those more complex cases to formulate a care plan, which can then be followed through on. Um, but I know if a person doesn't have food, they can't focus on taking their medication. <laughs> If a person can't get to their appointment or the pharmacy, that's not going to help them to get the care for their issue. If a person cannot afford their copay for their medication, they're never going to take it because they can't get the medication. So just understanding that role and understanding that it is just important for me to care for that social aspect of them if I truly want them to know that I care about their physical health. And I think just health care for the homeless just in who we are and, and what we were created from to help the most vulnerable, I think it was just a natural movement towards this more encompassing care team, patient-centered model of care. Yeah. So it seems like your organization, just from, from who you are and what you do, would attract a certain um, practitioner who has certain qualities of you know, compassion and awareness and, um, you know, awareness of, of systemic racism and injustice and, and all of that. Um, what, what, in the kind of model where you work, where, you're, where this communication is necessary and, and it has to be, you know, there has to be this, this buy-in and, and um, uh, support of it, what kind of qualities are necessary to be a practitioner? in your organization, to work with the people, to provide the best care? You have to be willing to check yourself at the door um, and understand that we all come to the table with some sort of bias, um, some known to some not known, um, but being willing to confront those when you're confronted with your own personal bias um, and, and truly not judge the bias cover. Um, because I tell, as I tell most people, homelessness is not a respecter of persons. I've treated individuals who have PhDs, uh, who through peaceful life circumstances um, are, are no longer able to maintain housing, um, as well as individuals who have a, a sixth grade education. Um, so, so it varies. So it's not a respecter of how well I did in school. It's the right set of circumstances can lead any of us down that path um, in regards to that. So a level of humility I think comes with the work um, in, in regards to how you approach it. Um, and, and just a, a willingness to maybe do things that aren't characteristically uh, you may do in a general practice setting, um, understanding that a bridge has to be built often um, with our with our clients. So I do say to work with, to serve our population and to at least do it for any length of time, you do have to be cut from a little bit of a different place. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and and 
Lillian, I think it was you had mentioned earlier that part of what you do, part of what's important with the people you serve is building trust. Um, could you talk a little more about that? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, listening to Amelia speak, um, this is this is the first place that I've worked at where I've crossed over into healthcare. I've always worked for nonprofits, for shelters, for services that that serve individuals that are experiencing violence or um, providing some sort of support with housing. Um, so with crossing over into healthcare, I think one of, one of the things that I respect the most about our medical providers is their compassion um, and ability to check themselves, like Amelia said. Um, and, and uh, I really appreciate the, the, the collective work that we have. I feel like my input is important and, and I feel like it's heard when I'm advocating for a client to a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist. Um, and so that, that sort of collective work, I think goes a long way. The, the trust that is created between outreach workers and community health workers, I think is rooted in our relationships with the medical providers. I'm not going to go and tell a client, oh, like, Amelia is really cool if she's not, you know, or like, she's going to provide, you know, like care, like compassionate care if she's not. Um, so having that honest, and real input um, and recommendation to give to clients makes me feel really good knowing that um, when they do come in for care, they are going to receive quality care um, and, and, and an opportunity to, to be able to communicate all of their needs. Um, so I, I believe that that's where the trust is rooted is because I trust the providers that I'm helping in for, for clients. Um, and the, as far as the work that we're doing on the ground and engaging people and building trust, a lot of that is consistent engagement, visiting people regularly, asking them what their need is, um, whether it's water or um, if, if, you know, if they don't have money to get on the bus, um, how can, how can I help you with what's going on? Not just um, we're healthcare service, like you need healthcare. I know you do come on over. Cause you said like, that's not always our priorities are, are not always our clients' priorities and in order to help people with their health care and whatever else is going out on, we, we have to help them with their priorities. And there are so many competing priorities. Um, it's, it's wild. Um, that I, I believe that's where the trust comes from. And I wanted to add with something Lillian just was saying, because um, you asked what is it requires in nursery. It doesn't require, in regards to my medical training, there's nothing that needs to differ in regards to my, my medical knowledge or knowledge of that. It, it's that human aspect. It's that um, that that des, that desire to serve somebody like that. We serve others like that's that's our greater good, like to serve someone else and, and to understand that everybody has a story and everybody has a voice. And, and as I've said, and I'll say it again, it's this being willing to check self at the door and, and to really hear these people and understand that they want to take care of their health as well. Um, and we just need to find a way to bridge to meet them there. Um, 
and, and understanding I may have my medical priorities, but when this patient comes in to visit, they may have their priorities and being willing to marry those um, to help clients to move forward on all the goals that we know will help them um, hopefully to live a long and healthy life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Patient-centered care. Right. There, there yeah. is, folks, right there. There's your description. <laughs> That's if you're um, wondering what it is. One of the questions I have is how do people find you? Like typically how do your, your, your patients, your clients find you? Uh, So with, with outreach workers and community health, there's, first of all, there's a ton of different ways that people can receive services. And one of them is through, through outreach workers and community health workers, we visit people where they're staying, whether it's at an encampment, in the streets, in a shelter. Um, and we, we also have a mobile clinic that um, is, is going the city to different areas where, where people may be um, experiencing homelessness. Um, so taking, taking our services out to where the need is. Um, we also, we have walk-in services, so anybody could walk in and receive medical services that day, case management, behavioral health, med adherence. Um, and we, people could also contact us through our website um, and ask for services or more information. Um, we, we also have a phone line where people can call and get scheduled, even if they are, have never been seen. Um, so there's a lot of different avenues for care. We also have relationships with um, social workers at hospitals who are helping people um, who have nowhere to stay or need to get connected to, to supportive services. Um, so so we, we, sometimes we meet people at the hospital before they're discharged. Sometimes we check in with people afterwards when we know what shelter they're staying at or, you know, like where, where they're going. Um, sometimes we provide people with our phone numbers and um, hope that they call us because um, we never want to force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. So there's different ways. Hmm. Yeah, our outreach and community health workers are definitely key to um, building that bridge and getting clients in. Um, And so the work they do is definitely um, foundational to us being able to see our clients and the clients knowing where to come and how to access us and get to us. So I would love to talk a little bit more about the clients that you serve, Um, because one of the things that I that I'm hearing from both of you that is just like making my heart so happy right now is the way that you talk about the people you serve. Um, like you're talking about how much you respect them and, and how resilient they are and, and um, uh, how they deserve the, you said they deserve the absolute best. And these are people who are usually discarded by society and you're here to sort of lift them back up. Um, there's a lot of stereotypes and myths and um, biases that, that color our you know, definition of who experiences homelessness. And Amelia, you've already started to kind of chip away at that, talking about, you know, people could have a PhD. That could be, you know, somebody who used to be your family doctor or something. Um, and what other myths do you want to kind of 
pull down for us about who experiences homelessness? Um, everyone who's homeless is not sure what you see in the movies, um, living under a bridge, um, uh, are, or in uh, a wooden encampment. Yes, we have clients and that is a population we absolutely serve. But there's also individuals who um, are uh, couch surfing because they don't have any stability in regards to um, their housing situation or shelter housing. So we, we have unsheltered um, homeless and then we have sheltered homeless. So those who are in um, like the, the community shelters and things of that nature. Um, so you, so you, can, you have this wide landscape of those um, who fall under the gamut of that. Um, other misconception is that individuals don't want to work or they don't want to care uh, for them. Um, what we know is that um, over 40% of our clients do work um, part-time or full-time employment in regards to that, but it's what's a livable wage, um, which is another discussion and not the scope of this. What, what are those things that, that allow people um, to, to, to fully function um, in a society and to fully care for themselves. Um, so just understanding that uh, people want to work and people have a genuine desire to want to care for themselves um, and, and, that, and that individuals don't ask to be homeless. Um, there's generally a set of circumstances, um, maybe a few that are within their control, but a lot that are bigger than them and, and maybe not so much in their control in regards to societal uh, systems and norms that make, once you're in homelessness, make it very difficult to sustainably get out of homelessness. So um, just understanding that there are complex systems in place that lead to people getting becoming homeless um, and that it takes a lot of work um, and comprehensive services uh, to move clients out of homelessness into more sustainable housing and living in general. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And thank you for clarifying that, Amelia, because joblessness and homeless experiencing homelessness are not synonymous. And I think that's a really mm -hmm. important thing for people to understand mm -hmm. and not to jump to a conclusion right. that there, there's I, a lot of I've, complexity. I've literally had clients where I've went into a restaurant and they're my patient and I know them and they know me, but they're working their job, but I know that they sleep in their car. Um, that I frequent. So it gives a another layer of reality when you see that, that this individual is working, um, but they're not making enough of the same, uh, an affordable housing situation. They don't make enough money to afford to have a stable place to live. Um, and that's the reality. And, you know, we, we kind of started off the program checking in with each other a little bit about COVID. And certainly we can see the potential with how things are going, like the real estate market here in Canada has mm -hmm. done like it's done in many places where a place that you could have purchased for say $200,000, you know, before COVID is now $450,000. So mm -hmm. we can see there's a potential for even folks who are making what one would consider a living wage mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure you all are talking about this and and preparing for this. Can you just speak to that a little bit? 
<laughs> the complexities of affordable housing um, in, in, um, in the U.S. Um, um, just uh, understanding uh, the complexities of what it means to have a livable wage. Um, I know here at Healthcare for the Homeless, our base pay for our lowest paid position is based off of what the state's um, is required to be able to afford a studio apartment. So that's what they base uh, our base salary off of for our lowest paid position here. Um, and so just understanding, like just seeing how housing, the cost of housing is going up um, and wages aren't um, by any means on par with that, um, how we are concerned that it is going to further exacerbate um, the issues that we see with our clients in regards to housing and homelessness. Um, and just some of the traditional systems that clients have relied on, like social services, being able to get into social services um, because you can't go in person. <laughs> you can only try to get someone over the phone. And if the phone system's not the best phone system, um, or you only have limited minutes, so you can't stay on the phone for two hours because you get 300 minutes a month. So you can't sit on the phone for two hours waiting for someone to come on. And then you might get hung up on um, in that process after waiting for due to a bad phone connection. Um, at the end of that, um, makes it very difficult for our clients to, even those who have housing, to maintain their housing if they've lost employment or um, uh, financial resources during this time or even to re-up resources they've gotten, such as their food stamps and things of that nature. Um, so it is definitely something that's in the forefront of our brains. And uh, Lillian may even be able to speak to that some just from what she sees on the ground um, as she goes day-to-day caring for patients. Yeah, I think um, it, as far as the impacts of the economy, we've had a lot of clients who have lost their jobs or have been uh, fired for testing positive for COVID. Unfortunately, um, there's been situations where where people are are left with with having to leave their home because where they're staying, they've 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 been told they can't stay there anymore because they have COVID or there's suspicion of having COVID. Um, so, you know, like a, a lot, a lot of our clients stay in um, small homes where you know, the, they're sharing small spaces with a lot of people. Um, and a, a lot of individuals are, are getting COVID just because of those small spaces that they share or um, with, with the way that they're getting to work sometimes with transport, sharing transportation or even at work. Um, so it, it's, it's impacting our clients in a lot of different ways. I know that, um, with community health workers and outreach workers, we don't work with every single client at healthcare for the homeless. Uh, we have like 10,000 clients. Um, we're working with the most vulnerable who need support, staying engaged and connected and, um, providing those urgent needs like food. Um, and the the need for food has increased a lot, and we've made a lot of efforts and um, new programming as an agency to meet that need. We have in-house food pantries now. Um, we collect produce 
twice a month from the Maryland Food Bank to provide fresh produce to clients. Um, so there's there's all these these additional impacts that COVID is having aside from from the the actual disease that um, that I I, I I would have never guessed, and people are suffering um, in more ways than one. Yeah, and that. I wanted to just add to that in regards to because um, everybody hears about um, the eviction moratorium. The thing is, is that's an eviction related specifically to like a COVID related like loss of employment. There are other there are there are other loopholes that um, landlords are using to get clients um, evicted from properties, such as lease non renewals. So yeah, okay, you weren't able to pay your rent, and yeah, I can't evict you over COVID, but I just won't renew your lease. So mm-hmm. your lease is up next month you now no longer have somewhere to live. And other loopholes like that are being used to still, where people are still becoming homeless because of this, even with moratoriums in place. Um, and we're going to Amelia, I just want to go back to something you said, because quite honestly, this is the first time I've ever heard that. And not to say that maybe other organizations aren't doing this, but you said that your organization bases your lowest wage for your mm-hmm. employees on on what could afford them at the very least a studio apartment. Absolutely, yes. Um, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yes, so that's actually yes, um, that is something, um, and our CEO um, talks about it often. But there was this was probably maybe, I guess at this point, time flies so quickly. I think it was about seven years ago or more. And it was before I got here, and I've been at the organization now for. Uh, five plus years, um, but an employee brought in, um, they were talking about poverty and, and livable wages and things like that. And she was like, well, this is how much I make and I don't make enough to sustain my housing. Like I, I don't like what you're paying me right now. And I don't make enough <laughs> to sustain my housing. And so it just evolved into a larger conversation um, as to what should be required for someone. Like we're managing people who are homeless, yet I'm not paying you enough that you can't reasonably afford to have a reasonable place um, to live. And so from there, um, the conversation moved and pay increases were made to move to where we use the HUD standard as our base pay standard for the lowest paid position at our organization. Could you lobby to make that law? <laughs> Seriously. We have a lobby day once a year where we go to our state legislature in Maryland and lobby. Um, and so we did lobby heavily for the fight for 15 um, for Maryland, which was passed not this year, but the year prior pre-COVID. Um, they passed that. And I think it's by, don't quote me on the year, I feel like it's 20 like 2025, like everyone has to be at $15 an hour if it's an employer that's over 50 employees. Um, but you can definitely look that up, the 5 for 15 in Maryland, um, and the law will come up. But that we did um, lobby our legislature um, for that specifically. So these, these are things that are on our radar for sure. Um, and 15 is still not enough, but it's a, it's a move in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, because we, you know, I hear conversations about how to effectively deal with people who are experiencing homelessness and affordable housing. Okay, that would be a really good start. 
you know, you got <laughs> because again, you know, staying away from that assumption or bias that joblessness and homelessness are synonymous, which they are not. You know, as you mentioned, many of your clients are working and working full time. It's just that mm-hmm. the situation is such that they cannot reasonably afford a place mm-hmm. to live. So mm-hmm. if if that were law, if I were queen, if that were law, <laughs> and and every business had to do that, that, yeah, just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, if, if we get to create our utopian society, absolutely. <laughs> I, would, I would totally live in that society and pay all the taxes or, you know, whatever. Yes. Whatever yeah. I need to do. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I was watching before we got on here an interview that your CEO did, I guess, about four years ago with a person who runs the Invisible People um, YouTube channel. and And he said this thing. That seems so. You hear it, and you're like, "Well, duh." But but it's also like, why are we not doing it? That homelessness is at bottom. Like we talk about, it's a substance abuse problem, or it's a mental health problem, or whatever. But at bottom, it's a housing problem. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. people are homeless mm-hmm. because yeah. they don't have a place to, to live. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and that is reality. Absolutely. It is a housing problem Um, because we, I think it was a couple years ago, but they did like some preliminary with some of our supportive housing clients um, who had um, some significant uh, mental health diagnosis, which qualifies them for the supportive housing program. And they looked at the year prior to them getting housed and the year after they got housed and it astronomically reduced their hospitalization rate and, and the actual medical costs related to their care just from having a stable place to say that it was their own. Um, and, and though that was a small subset uh, of clients, it, it blows to a larger issue that we know is an issue. Um, and that housing is healthcare. Um, more than any medicine I prescribe, we say it all the time. That's our like one of our mantras around here. Housing is healthcare. Like we we scream it. <laughs> like yes, make medicine affordable. Yes, improve access. Yes, do that. But let's just give people clean, affordable places to live. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great great starting place. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> a safe place to sleep. One of the, sorry, one of the things that uh, COVID has brought light to is is that I think housing is healthcare. Um, in Baltimore City, a lot of the shelters have closed down temporarily, and both the residents from shelters have been placed in hotels, and so they have their own space, their own bathroom, um, and so many of our clients who previously were staying in the streets or in and out of shelters are doing so much better because they have that space and that just that's theirs and um, and is quiet and safe and comfortable. Um, now, it, it still doesn't work for everyone because there's still mm-hmm. rules and things that that are hard. But um, but we, we I, I've noticed that some of our clients who um, wouldn't go to shelter because of all of the things that it comes with it um, are doing great. In, in hotel. And I think that goes to show like stability and housing is healthcare. Yeah. I think COVID has given an opportunity 
to shed some light on some really critical issues within our society. You know, the, we've talked about this on this podcast. Are are we going to pay attention? And when yes. COVID is no longer around, are we just going to slide back into, you know, uh, not if any of us can help it for sure. You know, we're pushing for, you know, let's really pay attention here, folks, and see if we can make some real progress forward. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great point. And I think it's, um, it, it, it will be, uh, time will tell. Um, and I think we're definitely all trying to keep some of that momentum and focus on um, what that looks like, um, what, what livable wages look like, what housing looks like, and some of the pushes that have come forth um, uh, since then, like to really still try to keep that momentum because these are all things that have been needed. Um, it's bad that a pandemic had to say that we needed it uh, and to have some of these tougher conversations, but it's like, okay, if we're going to take any positives out of a very difficult time um, for all of us to varying degrees, like, look, let's keep this momentum forward so that it's a more equitable society for everybody. Well, and Lillian, going back to what you commented on just uh, before about you're starting to see now some data around how much better some of, you know, your clients are doing now that they've got a stable, safe place to live, their own bathroom, their own space. Um, you know, and one of my things is always is there's nothing more expensive than poor health. So if we look at those costs about how costly is it to try to manage versus something as simple as simple as providing someone with a place to live, how much is that going to save in the big picture in terms of healthcare? Yeah. Um, and in regards to, I know just in regards to like a, a mental health hospitalization can cost anywhere from, Ten to twenty to thirty thousand dollars, depending on length of stay, things like that. And and I believe if I, I, the sub cohort of clients that they had that we had done, and this was a couple of years back, just in the cost savings, it was it was well over fifty thousand dollars in regards to what would be saved in regards to the cost of healthcare. And if you multiply that by what it even costs, when it can cost you what. $10,000, $12,000 a year to house someone, you could be housing four to five people from the cost savings that you're having from just keeping this person out of the hospital four times a year for a mental health crisis, all because a, they're stably housed, they have a place to store the medication. Yeah. They can actually take their medication because they have food or if they need to sleep because the medicine makes them a little sleepy, they're able to do that um, safely without fear of being hurt or harmed or um, having to deal with the illness. Um, it, it's quite amazing. And having that case management support and, and other wraparounds that they may need to be able to stay there. Um, so so it's, really, um, it's really profound the effect that stable housing can have. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, um, I want to be mindful of your all's time, but uh, we usually ask our guests, I mean, you've already said like so many profound things that I'm going to carry around for days and hopefully a lifetime. But I wonder if you have any like last thoughts, sort of things that you want to make sure that people carry with them after listening to this episode. I think uh, 
I just want to say that everybody goes through somebody and judging isn't fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm getting to know people and providing empathy and trying to put yourself in other people's shoes goes a long way. And um, yeah, I think having some sort of understanding of that is, is important. Um, not to judge a book by its cover, um, to see people as people first um, over anything else. Understanding the impact of poverty um, on in every landscape. Um, when you look at um, crime rates or um, housing rates or things like that, when you look at any of those metrics, poverty is a, <laughs> a key indicator for where those things happen. Yeah. And so if we can improve people's ability to live and in a safe and affordable environment and be able to care for themselves and their family, we greatly reduce all of those ills that we so look at and want to shy away from. Um, so just understanding the impact that we have and, and to think bigger and understanding that homelessness is not an individual problem, it's a system problem. And to look at it as a system problem so you can begin to really dig in to build systems that work for people and not against people when they need them. That is it. It's a system problem. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you, Lillian. Thank you, Healthcare for the Homeless in Maryland, for um, existing and doing what you do. Um, and I am Rebecca Sturgeon. And I am still Kathy Ryan. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, and this has been another episode of Interdisciplinary. Uh, you can like us on all the social medias and write a review for us. Uh, give us some feedback. Send us little love notes at info at hewell.org. And uh, we look forward to hearing, hearing from you and having your ears hear from us next week. Thank you. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.